What's up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat down with Kane McGookin to talk about the global world order, the geopolitical chess match that is playing out, and a bunch of other things. Talked about The Last Samurai, too. Movie I haven't seen yet. Need to watch it on the list. We'll watch it at some point. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at River. River is the easiest place to stack sats, most secure place to stack sats. River is a team of Bitcoiners who have built their company themselves. They don't have any third parties that they depend on, like Prime Trust or Fortress. They build all their infrastructure, their wallets, their cold storage. If you buy Bitcoin on River, it's backed one to one, 100% in multi sig cold storage. You can DCA easily on River, set it and forget it. If you do that, you're not going to pay any fees. They have the ability for you to get peace of mind in less than five minutes by setting your beneficiaries for free in the River platform as well. So if you um, have people that you want to pass Bitcoin onto, Bitcoin held on River onto, you can easily set your beneficiaries in River's platform. Go stack sats. River.com slash TFTC. River.com slash TFTC. This rip was also brought to you by a good friend down the hall, Unchained. Bitcoin price is pumping, as you can see on the block clock behind me, $43,703. Many of you out there may have IRA accounts filled with a bunch of fiat assets. Bitcoin is the best money that the world has ever seen. You want to get exposure to it. Maybe you have an IRA that you'd like to get Bitcoin exposure into. Unchained has a Bitcoin IRA product. If you want to roll some of your current IRA or your whole IRA into Bitcoin using Unchained, they make it very easy uh, without, and you can do it without taking a tax hit. Most importantly, within Bit, uh, Unchained's Bitcoin IRA, you can hold your own keys. It's a two or three multi-sig setup. Unchained holds a key, then you hold two keys. So you can hold Bitcoin in your IRA and hold your own keys. It's a beautiful thing. Go hit up their consultation team, their concierge team, to learn more about this product, what you need to do to transition your IRA from the fiat world to the Bitcoin world. They'll get you set up. Go to unchained.com slash consultation. Set up a consultation today and please tell them the TFTC sent you. This was also brought to you by our friends at CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth's blowing up right now. Me and my family use CrowdHealth as an alternative to health insurance. Health insurance is notoriously opaque, expensive, and impersonal. CrowdHealth is looking to fix that. It's not health insurance. It's crowdfunded healthcare. You pay a monthly fee. If you ever have a health event, you go to the doctor and you get your bill. You bring it back to CrowdHealth. They negotiate the price lower. You pay the first $500 and the rest gets crowdfunded by the rest of the CrowdHealth community. 100% of bills have been funded to date. It's an incredible model. If you're a freelancer out there, uh, if you're recently unemployed, unfortunately, uh, and you're looking for a cheap alternative to Cobra, uh, or if you're just a healthy individual who doesn't want to pay exorbitant health insurance costs because you don't go to the doctors that much, CrowdHealth is a much cheaper alternative. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC, sign up today, and you'll get $99 for the first six months. This one was also brought to you by good friends at Bitcoin Talico. Bitcoin Talico is a recruiting firm built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. If you're a company in the space looking to hire as the price goes higher. Pun. Good pun there. If you're looking to hire as the price is going higher, go hit up Bitcoin Talent Co. 
they understand Bitcoin uh, at the base layer. They understand multi-sig. They understand mining. They understand lightning. They're going to help you find the best talent that is out there. Maybe it's living in the tech industry, the banking industry, the design industry. They're going to go find it for you and get you the best talent to help you build out your company, which is helping all of us get to a Bitcoin standard. So go to bitcointalent.co, tell them the TFTC sent you. They also have a Flex product. Maybe you don't need a full-time employee. You don't want to take on all those expenses. Uh, the Flex products allows you to tap into a roster of individuals who can do contract work, three months, six months. You need an engineering sprint, a design sprint, a growth marketing sprint. Their Flex network is there for you. So go to bitcointalent.co, tell them the TFTC sent you and enjoy this episode with Kane. Thank you. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Logan just gave me the thumb up. Cool, cool. All right. It's I funny we say, it. we say thumbs up, but it's usually just one thumb up. Give me the yeah, thumb you're up. right. Well, it's like baseball, you know, foul ball, heads up, and everybody looks up. Yeah. Kane, yeah. welcome to the show. We've been DMing on Twitter for years now. I'm excited that we finally got this together. Yeah, Marty, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I know DMs are always good, but uh, sometimes I'm pretty good at uh, forgetting about them. Uh, coming back to him. So thanks for having yeah. me on. Well, thank you for coming on. What incited this was I wrote a newsletter November 20th. So three weeks ago now, geopolitical chessboard reshuffling, talking about um, essentially what's going on in the geopolitical landscape with countries like Saudi Arabia and China beginning to come closer together. The U.S. seems to be shooting itself in the foot from the geopolitical posturing. Many people are for lack of a better term, getting really pissed off with the United States, particularly its foreign policy. And this will have an effect on the global macroeconomic landscape, especially as it pertains to the U.S. dollar, its reserve currency status, and the U.S. hegemony, which it has had for, for many, many decades now. So you were telling me right before we hit record, you've been diving into this subject more broadly for almost 20 years now, 16 yeah. years. Yeah, when, uh, I mean, I think, yeah, if I take it back, uh, really, even before financial markets, so I was a big baseball nut, always read financial history as a kid. I mean, not financial history, but baseball history as a kid. Um, 20s, 30s, mostly Yankee stuff. Um, and then I think like mid 90s, started coming across kind of steroids in baseball and diving down that rabbit hole, and everybody's like, ah, it doesn't exist. And, you know, then 2010, it was obvious, but nobody cared. So I was an adult after college, um, did a couple of things kind of in the financial realm, real estate, that sort of stuff, but got over, I always enjoyed trading in the markets and started working in it, just traditional wealth management, nothing special. Um, but went down that similar rabbit hole with the financial system, how things work, how markets work, how we were trading different assets across different desks and that sort of thing. Um, and I came in the business in kind of like, I don't know, 05, 06. So right in front of just 
the the monsoon of 2008 um and came in at bear stearns we again it was a local office wasn't in new york um and we were doing trading and and whatnot and so just seeing it firsthand and and not having any idea what's going on and and so i took that same approach go back to the foundation figure out how this stuff works what is it and um through 2007 uh, eight, nine, ten. We had some hedge fund clients, had some uh, big institutional clients, insurance companies, those kind of things. And uh, I started reading all the emails from just the bailouts and, and particularly the Lehman, um, the Lehman kind of issues and the Dick Fold emails. And then that just kind of rabbit hole, just like with steroids into all this other stuff that I didn't understand and credit default swaps and derivatives and um, gold and all that kind of stuff. And so that sort of led to the the tweets and whatnot that we we're talking about and uh, going on with China and the geopolitical wars and the currency wars and all the hacking. So I'll kind of pause right there, um, let you jump back in and see, you know, we'll kind of get that rolling. Yeah, and I think China's always perplexed me. I said this, I think it was on the Spaces last week. We were doing for the Bitcoin Times Energy ed- Edition. Somebody's asking me about the Chinese real estate market and whether or not it was imploding. I said, it seems like it is, but I don't know. You hear news out of China, or I do, um, and I never know what to believe. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the great Chinese firewall is very successful um, at sort of making it so it's not obvious what's right. going on uh, to the outside world. And it seems like you're honing in and have done a lot of research on China. So what you I guess let's focus on China, its place in the world, what it's trying to do, what its economic situation is in reality and how that will affect the geopolitical landscape moving forward. Yeah. I think a big picture, right? Just like you said, if you listen to Jim Chanos, who was a great hedge fund manager, um, 80s, 90s, uh, 2000s. He's been short China since as long as I can remember. So if you were an investor and you kind of took his advice, you'd be out of money at this point, right? And China still exists. So um, short sellers are great. Uh, they're great for the markets. I agree with them. I like them. I kind of believe in that tendency. But, you know, you can be right and wrong at the same time. And so if you couple that with, I think, Ray Dalio's work is kind of the most important and it's really what got me back into just this general interest. I mean, one thing macro went dead kind of, in, let's just call it the 2000 teens. Um, now macro is back in vogue, right? It's the thing it's, it's Bitcoin it's gold. It's, it's stocks, it's China, it's us, it's geopolitics. So it, it kind of brought it back, but Ray Dalio's work really is the foundation of that because he doesn't say it explicitly, but when you read his stuff, he basically built most of the U.S. financial markets. And then China kind of called him over there to build their markets. And I think at one point in some text, he says, effectively, they asked him to kind of run, you know, one of the big committees or organizations that would kind of oversee the financial markets. And he turned it down. Now, maybe a little bit incorrect there, but I read something around that um, in some of his works. Um, so he kind of built their market. So if there's one guy that knows how all this stuff works and has relationships around the world, it's him. And so you kind of have to trust that and, and kind of lean into that. And so um, t- 
to take it one step forward, just big picture without jumping down the rabbit hole, you know, his work says civilizations last on average about 240 years. That's where we are. Reserve currencies last 70 years, 100 years, give or take. That's where the dollar is. Um, and so then if you look at that cycle and technology and, and how all that plays in, we're, we're in the realm of all that. And so education and technology in the U.S. is kind of going like this. Yes, everybody comes to the U.S. to invest in technology and that sort. But Europe's ahead of the curve. China's ahead of the curve. Trump's administration, I think it was like 2017 or 16, they did a deep dive into the financial system and what we need to do to digitize it. Well, China's been five years ahead. Europe is three or five ahead, and we're just get, getting started. And that's where all like the Fed now and all that kind of stuff's coming from. Um, so you look at it, you say, well, why would China want to do this? Well, they've been the sweatshop to the world for 30, 40 years. And they're kind of at a point where, like, hey, we're big enough. We have enough cloud people. We have enough partners. Like, we don't, you know, we want a seat at the table in the G7, used to be the G5. We want to be a part of this decision making process for the global financial system. And, you know, Europe, US, kind of like Japan, the other big players are like, nah, it's all right. You just keep going making the stuff, we'll let you have a little bone, but like, we don't need you in this kind of classic, just, you know, buddy buddy system. Um, and so, that kind of gets us where we are today. And, and when you look at kind of, there is no such thing as a dollar. It's just a basket, right? It's the greatest financial network there is because we can use it anywhere, but it's a, it's a component of other currencies. So if the dollar's going up, those currencies are going down. If the dollar's going down, those currencies are going up. And so then you kind of step in to the 70s and that's when the financial system was really kind of breaking down off the back of Bretton Woods. And they created this, what was supposed to be a digital token, the SDRs, uh, special drawing rights. And that was, again, a basket of currencies for central banks to trade back and forth IOUs with the dollar was a central component and then a few other people. And guess who finally got a seat at the table? China. And so when you think about it that way and you look at it that way, that's exactly how, in my opinion, and you know, people can debate it, I could be wrong. Uh, the U.S. took power from Britain in kind of the late 1800s, early 1900s. So you kind of have a confluence of a lot of different things coming together where it's just like what we've seen before. And then building on that line of thinking, if you fast forward from the 70s, obviously Triffin's dilemma played out. Mm -hmm. China became the sweatshop of the world, right. as you described it. And, and we, in fairness, we were in the early 1900s, 20s, and 30s. Yeah. Yeah, but the you Industrial know, Revolution. And right. Many stories of child labor here in the United States. And so just that repeated itself. And so you, I guess you have that 50-year transition where you hollow out your industrial base, move it somewhere else, flood the world with right. dollars. But then that industrial base builds up in China. Mm -hmm gives them a lot of power to then mm -hmm. try to wield, which seems like they're trying to do right now. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, and so to me, it's interesting. It's also scary because they have a different, you know, outlook on life than, than kind of we do here. There's different political systems there's different value systems. Um, in some ways their value systems are better, right? The Eastern, 
medicine, Eastern healing, Eastern, like, Hey, let's value our time on earth. And, and let's, you know, last samurai, it's all about honing your craft. And then in America is like, dude, how do we just do this quick and easy and make a lot of money? Right. Mm-hmm. And so spiritually kind of honing your craft is what we're supposed to be doing rather than just trying to get rich. So there's just butting heads. Yeah. So where, where do you think it stands right now? Like I mentioned <clears throat> the newsletter that you responded to, uh, I believe I mentioned in that the, um, from the Saudi Arabia, uh, I believe head of foreign affairs came out with a comment right. in regards to Israel, uh, in Palestine and said, Hey, we want peace in that area. We're going to try and broker it. And our first stop's going to be China, which is a big signal. Like it's not the U S um, mm-hmm. to go to the, the police officer of the world, which the U S mm-hmm. has been for, for many decades. So that's a signal. And then in that same week, shortly after that, I think that that announcement happened on a Friday. And then next Monday was announced that Saudi Arabia and China had opened up a currency swap deal with each other, relatively small, $7 billion over the course of the next two years. But it is a step in a particular direction um, away from U.S. dominance. So, so what do you think is happening? you think China, Saudi Arabia, Russia, others are, are recognizing how overextended the U.S. is and are making some tactical moves to... Yeah, and I, I agree with that. So that's why I respond. And from, from time to time over the years, I'll respond just lightly on some things that you hit on. But I think that's important because on the outside, right, if you read the Wall Street Journal, they kind of tell you what happened after the fact. But like early days, if you read the FT, they kind of give you the breadcrumbs of things that are happening that end up being issues six months, 12 months down the road. So the news is telling us this after the fact, exactly what you said. But the importance is that groundwork and the foundations for that to happen started in around 2013 with China's Belt and Roads initiatives. So this is, goes back to where I opened with. So back then, and, and probably before then, but it became in the papers, very you know big news, open news. People are just like, oh, look at that. But they were laying the foundation. So they're going around the world to Canada and getting access to oil sands and oil and energy. And they were going to Africa and getting access to um, all these uh, rare earth materials uh, for technology and lasers and things like that. And And they were going into Iran and Iraq and all the different oil countries and setting up these deals. And so first thing you had to do was set up that foundation like, hey, Marty, you know, I think you do a great job. Is there some way we can work together, right, and get this resource? And when you look at it that way and you kind of understand what the U.S. did in the 1920s and 30s was the same thing, is we went around the world while there was World War One building partnerships. And who did we build partnerships with? We built partnerships with Hitler and Mussolini and all these other guys that were bad people but we had to have a way to build a relationship to create financial connections. And so there's this great, I think I shared it with you, but this image, I don't know, I found it on the internet somewhere in 2019 or 2020. It kind of describes how the U.S. took power. And from 1919 to 24, they set up this massive global American financial investment. So if you look, so we had to create this dollar network. But the world is using pound, 
and, and, and all their currencies were primarily pound and Britain runs things. And so then you get everybody kind of using a little bit of your money here and there, these small $7 billion transactions, right? Currency swaps and that you didn't have swaps then it was all gold, but uh, there were various types of, so you've got that kind of, Hey, let's just get started and see if this works. And then from 1924 to 29, you establish, and this, it says establish control over the financial system of Germany. And that's where we're like funding Hitler and Mussolini with the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's and, and all this is text. Like you can go back and read in different things. Um, it's kind of to make it simple. You could go to back and watch, uh, Alex Gladstein's, uh, Bitcoin conference talk, right? A lot of that is baked in there. So why did we, you know, set up the red cross? It wasn't to aid the world and help them out with medical issues and disaster. It was to create, a way to get dollars into other parts of the world that didn't have access and, and create a debt system. So then they're burdened to you, right? It's a way to create that network and, and to kind of bake that into Bitcoin, like Bitcoin's done that with the Bitcoin brand and, and created all these different places where Bitcoin's slowly being adopted in areas that have financial issues. And so from 29 to 33, the image, you know, says, then you provoke and unleash a deep financial and economic crisis. Well, that's where in 2009, you know, the world's kind of blown up, debt's blown up, and China's just kind of like, eh. you know, they've got their issues as well, but they're kind of like, hey, we have all these treasuries, we could nuke you, but then it'll nuke everybody else if we sell them. So that's where you kind of get into this, in my opinion, I call it the second greatest Trojan horse in history, where, you know, we give China dollars for basketballs. And then they say, okay, well, like these are cool. We'll use some, but we'll just buy your treasuries and get this nice rate and do that for 20 years. And then the world blows up in 2009 and we all of a sudden say, hey, I don't know if we can pay you for 30 years at this rate because like this is an issue. Would you swap your 30 years for 10 years? And China's like, sweet, because I don't want exposure to you for another 30 years. And so they swap 30s for 10s. And they take that cash and start buying our land. And and so you've kind of got exactly what we did in the late uh, 20s and 30s, I think it was. And then the last step, let me get this picture back up because I always have trouble remembering it. Well, if you want to uh, put that picture, if you want to DM it to me on Twitter or put it in the, if you can put it in the comments here, yeah. we can pull it up on screen as well. All right, hang on. Let me do that so you can edit this out. And I don't remember where I found this picture. I've posted it a number of times over the last couple of years. There was a guy on the on Twitter that went back and found a website. It wasn't the website that I got it from, but uh, and sent it to me. All right, so I just DM that to you. So the last step, uh, get that back up, and then I'll come back to your screen. From 1933 to 1939, you've got financial cooperation with the Nazi government and support for its expansion for foreign policy. So the way, if you look through historical text and government documents and things that all kinds of stuff. So we set up financial system, we get everybody indebted and then we didn't win world war two from guns. We won it by cutting off their financial access. And so let's fast forward to today. China's kind of done most of these steps 
And in a worst case scenario, like I, you know, I don't want things to crumble. Nobody wants kind of anarchy. Uh, but if our civilization is towards the end and the reserve currency is toward the end and China has set up all these financial connections around the world to get the resources needed to build and to grow, they kind of fast forward once there's a monetary system that, that can handle global currency. So I'll, I'll stop there and you can kind of interject, ask some questions, and, and then we can kind of get to a little bit of a point around uh, what I think is important around Bretton Woods and, and Bitcoin and, and other, just the crypto ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, they're setting up this infrastructure in anticipation for a vacuum of power, and then the infrastructure will be able to suck that power in their direction. Another thing I mentioned in that newsletter that incited this conversation, I forget exactly which country it was. I forget if it was in Africa or Latin America, but they're going to issue... They're yeah. going to issue loans to countries that ha- don't have great dollar liquidity. They're going to issue them dollar loans, but they're asking to be paid back in yuan on the back end, which is right. uh, a roundabout way to to drive yuan demand. So, uh, so what is that? Not to jump in, just because that's a critical point, very <laughs> critical. So, what is that to me? That sounds like, hey, we're the Red Cross. Here's some disaster relief. Yeah. You need dollars. You need to go buy some stuff internationally here. Pay me back in Renminbi or Yuan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's one thing. And I guess before we jump into like where this could go, like one, again, I'm China's in my mind, extremely hard to read. Like you yes. can see a scenario where they're doing all this, but domestically things are, terrible and they could shoot themselves in the foot. Like if you look at the, going back to the real estate crisis in China, it seems like it's materializing just like from first principles, seeing the videos of these ghost cities over the last five, 10 years mm-hmm. that have been erected, uh, that they're ghost cities, they build them and nobody lives in them and have all this exposure to the real estate market. That seems extremely fragile. Like, do you envision a scenario where China's trying to do all this, but they just went too hard into bunk economic policies domestically that it prevents yeah. them from it, it could totally it could totally be that um i'm a little so i don't follow it as deeply anymore i'm a little bit perplexed on that point because on the one hand it you had a bunch of empty stuff what are you gonna do with it now in world war ii we kind of had that same thing we've got all these goods that nobody's gonna buy so when we call those soldiers home like what do we do with this and we built a middle class and so in China, they've got so many people, you know, as most of the population is over there, right? Between China and India, 8 billion people and most of us over there. So you got all these, in one way, it's smart, right? In the U.S., we kind of do it dumb. You need a four-lane highway. What do we do? We build a two-lane road, let it cause traffic jams where it takes an hour to go anywhere. And then we come back and spend three years making that two-lane road a three-lane road. That gets you know, filled up again and we got traffic jams. So now we'll spend two years making a four lane road. Well, China went ahead and was like, well, we have however many billions of people in the hills of China that are making $2 a day. We're going to build a 12 lane highway that has one car on it and an empty city. And eventually those people will come into the city because that's where commerce happens. Now, does that play out? Possibly. I I, I don't know. That's, that's where it kind of like, 
for me to try to figure it out, there's not a way to kind of make a living off of it. So I just sort of stopped. Well, that begs another question too. I know we're using historical parallels here, but does the current situation as it stands today in 2023, like, are there like, it feels like the world's more hyper-connected than it's ever been. Does that right. variable really prevent like history from rhyming in the way that it did in the past? So that's where like my answer there is, I think that's what's important about money and that's what's important about Bitcoin. And that's what is important about understanding the Ray Dalio big debt crisis and the uh, changing world order. So the simplistic way that I th- think about it and I kind of say to people and I don't know if people understand or not or if it even makes sense to anybody but me but like money changes when the lifestyles and the speed of which people need access to money changes so if you look at money gold is the only money ever to last throughout man time the only one every failing civilization has had some form of a faster money that broke and got levered and rehypothecated and and whatever. And then they default back to gold and it starts over. And so when you look at, again, the the early 1900s, 1930s kind of happened because gold wasn't fast enough anymore to meet the needs of the roaring 20s and and people, the industrialization, like how fast people were moving around. So I wrote an article on that for Bitcoin Magazine maybe a year ago. And um, kind of talking about that. And so then we put these dollars on top of gold and that worked until the fifties. And then, you know, digital technology came in and we're starting to do some things digitally and, and, and then dollars couldn't move around fast enough. So we created this thing called the credit card network, which was tapped in to the dollars, which were tapped, tapped into the gold. And then in the sixties, we got the internet and, we're starting to get some information flowing back and forth over the internet. And so then by the seventies, the credit card network and the dollars and the gold didn't work anymore. And so that's where we created in the fifties, the SDR and kind of this digital thing and ACH and Fedwire, ACH, Fedwire, all those things are just protocols. So if we think of their text-based protocols. So if you think about what we're seeing now is like, wait, we have this digital network, Bitcoin, that solves the problem that um, that the major countries, Japan, um, U.S., Europe, were trying to solve in the 70s, that will do all that. And we also have these things called cell phones. So I don't have to fly all around the world to have these meetings that we can't do anything about till three days later. We can get on Zoom. You and I can have this conversation. So you, you bake all that in and... So the speed with which people are moving around, we have, we have global people, like you and I can go on a trip to China tomorrow. Uh, we have global commerce, corporations, they might be U.S. companies, but they're headquartered in Ireland because it's a tax haven, Microsoft, all those guys. Um, or we have a bunch of Chinese people that have bought, and Chinese individuals and corporations that have bought up U.S. corporations and land, right? And so, but our money doesn't work that way. And then most of our lives, we spend it on Netflix and YouTube and Facebook and Zoom and, and other things like this podcast. But our money doesn't attach in, but we have that 402 protocol that everybody gets all yipped up about, right? And so that's how 
if you got the TCP IP layer, it's just information that allow voice and video and all that stuff. And now we have this Bitcoin layer that's a protocol on top of these other two protocols. But this one actually carries text and value. And so now you can use those parts of the internet like before you couldn't use VOIP, VoIP, and, and, and video and, and all that to better speed up transactions. Now, I'm not talking about it and the transaction per second with credit cards and, and kind of like the unsound parts of it, but people in business are moving at speeds which our money can't, but now we have these tools to make our money and create a level of soundness, right? When civilization changed, that soundness, we have to come back to a soundness and everything has to get redistributed. And I, to me, I think that's what we're seeing. And if you look at the SDR basket, um, I posted a video, not a video, but a, a, a um, it was something about like the history of the dollar and you could just see it moving a couple of days ago. And it was a visualization and you can see the currency war playing out for the last hundred years. And in the last 15 or so, you see China bringing back their seat at the table because they're now in that through the SDR. So does that kind of answer your question? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, well, I think we can dive even further down because that's one of my theses. Uh, like I'm, I'm, I put a probability on it, but I don't... Um, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion, but like that, what I've been saying is like, yeah, the dollar, it seems obvious. Look at the federal debt, look at the unfunded liabilities. That's a math equation that cannot be solved. We're not going to fix the dollar. People are starting to recognize that we weaponized treasuries two years ago or last year. And when we froze Russians, uh, the Russians treasury assets, and people are looking for an alternative. You have Saudi Arabia, China, Russia, India, others budding up create their own SDR, their own basket of currencies, whatever it is. So I could see a situation in which dollar dominance declines and they try to do their basket, but it, it is fraught with the same problems that led to the demise of the dollar and every fiat currency before it up to this mm -hmm. point in time. And again, going back to what we just discussed, which is this hyperconnectivity, like, I don't know, maybe I'm naive to think that the hyperconnectivity would allow information to disperse where if the BRICS countries tried to do that. People would be like, why are you doing this? We just did this with the dollar yeah, right, and every right. fiat currency before. Like, how does this not end in the same it, way? Uh, like, why don't we just use something like Bitcoin? But I could see a period where they do that. They're somewhat successful for a period of time. It implodes. Maybe it's not 80 years. Maybe it's 10 years even. And then people are like, oh, no, Bitcoin's the obvious answer to this. And that that's the perplexing situation that we're in because if all these countries were just to swallow their pride and recognize that Bitcoin is a superior technology to do all of these things and just to ad adopt it as quickly as possible, they could solve a lot of the problems they're trying to solve much quicker. Yeah, I agree with that. Like that's kind of the dog chasing its tail, you know, but if you look at, again, to take it one step back, to a little bit of a spiritual thing. If you read the whole Bible, so when the world got messed up in 2020, I grew up Christian believer, all that stuff, but I never actually read the whole thing. So in 2020, I was like, well, I only know one book that is messed up enough and has enough messed up stories that kind of might explain everything. And so when you read it cover to cover, you see everything we're seeing now, but thousands of years ago. 
and you and when you kind of go back and and let's just say you were a history buff which i never even liked history until i got into financial markets and by trade i'm a technician i'm a chartist magic lines and people are like oh, it doesn't work well it doesn't work in traditional markets because they're so massaged and manipulated. I mean, look, the Fed's own data, the Federal Reserve and New York Fed says we've been in a recession for a year and a half now, but we just changed the definition. And so this human psychology is embedded in every price of anything that we trade. And so when you see Bitcoin and, and just the broader crypto space, because that market is not as massaged over the last couple of years, you're seeing some of it. Um, you get natural price action and the magic lines work great. And so um, the dog chasing the tail kind of component is every time civilization has changed, we go back to a sound money and over the next 80 years, and this is where the fourth turning kind of comes into it. We make the same mistakes and that sound money eventually becomes unsound. Now I know it would be a little bit unpopular from the Bitcoin perspective to say that Bitcoin, you know, will ever become unsound. But since man has been on earth, that's happened to every money that we've ever had, except for gold. And Bitcoin does a lot of the things that gold can't do. So possibly Bitcoin becomes just like gold. And, you know, but in that realm, if there's a fear, it's like if you look at gold, it went nowhere from 1980 till 2007. So for 27 years, and that was kind of from the suppression and the tools like futures and options and ETFs and the ways that the traditional banker and the traditional politician that everybody's so excited that they're Bitcoiners, they live by the rules that are outlined in tragedy and hope, live by the rules that are outlined in power and control. And so, for them to be involved in money to me is kind of a bad thing right and that kind of helps these transitions happen now hopefully they're good and, and i'm wrong and and hopefully like bitcoin solves all these problems and and we can kind of get back to a world where people can just focus on living and working and doing things they're passionate about rather than you know spending so much time on the, the hamster wheel so that was a long-winded way of saying you know, when money changes, we get those periods of 30, 50, 70 years where it's sound, but over that same time, it be starts to become unsound again. And generally, when you see that, you get the civilization change. Yeah. And I think that's the hope with Bitcoin is that, that it's, I mean, you referenced the Bible and Eric Kaysen and others have described Bitcoin as messianic money, like a, mm -hmm. like a, gift from God to fix these systemic problems with our monetary systems that humanity has had for thousands of years. And again, it could be naive. It could be too optimistic. It could be too idealist, but I do like to appease the idea that Bitcoin is that messianic intervention. Yeah. Um, maybe you, you don't even have to get biblical about it or spiritual about it. You can just, yeah. Well, I think when money breaks, okay. So, Broken money is a symptom of broken principles and values. People will live in a world where principles and values are broken. We've been living it since 1980. But they will only pay attention once the money breaks. Once the inflation gets so hard where they, they like 
can't stick their head in the sand anymore. Just remember the steroids conversation. Like around 2005, people were like, oh, yeah, there's steroids, but I don't really care because I like going to a game where they hit 10 home runs because a one-to-nothing pitcher's battle is pretty boring, right? And I don't really care to see a guy steal bases, but if he can hit three jacks in a game, like that's what I want to go to. So people will live in that world comfortably because we like to be comfortable. We don't like to be uncomfortable um, until the money breaks. And so that's where, not to be biblical, but that's where you take it and say, where's the common denominator between Bitcoin as a money? It's rooted in core principles and values, immutabilities, like you can't change this, you can't do this because the code says it. But when you look at the Bible, it says you can't do these things because the code says it, because the laws of principle and value and work says it. Because that's kind of really our purpose is to be on, light, be on the earth to work at whatever skill we have, whatever passion. We're not here to make and collect money. So that's, to me, the, the correlation that's really cool about Bitcoin. It resets, hopefully, um, our entire civilization back to doing things that matter. Like you're passionate um, about all the things at 1031 and TFTC. Like, so you're part of that principles and values. And that's, that's really what, like, even though they basically just brought the European financial system here, but that's what the founding fathers were about. George Washington and those guys uh, were Alexander Hamilton were passionate about getting away from the evil and the rooted and the brokenness of money and starting again. Now, unfortunately, they just took the same financial system, brought it over here. And if you follow that paper trail, that's why the BIS is calling the shots and the Fed's just the execution arm. Yeah. No, that's the hope, too. With Bitcoin. Like going back to what we were discussing earlier with China, going out in this Belt and Road Initiative to set up all this infrastructure just to this eventually have the world reserve currency, and get all that power. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of time. It's a lot of capital. It's a lot of politicking mm-hmm. just to have some sort of advantage within the monetary hierarchy. And I always wonder, like, obviously, the mean Bitcoin fixes this. It's like, does like what would the world look like if the global superpowers didn't have to politic and strategize that way? They were just able to operate on a monetary protocol that was apolitical, that nobody had control of them, none of them did. And so then they're forced to go focus on more productive endeavors outside exactly. of this chessboard positioning. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, to kind of bring that back, and one point you made about weaponizing the dollar, right? So that was, to me, it was game on. Uh, when was the hearing where Zuckerberg was in at Congress and they were like, you know, taking him around? Pretending for, to beat him for it the Libra like, stuff. Yes, that'd yeah, be like yeah. 2019. Yeah. So I saw one snippet, and I posted it, and it's the most important snippet of all this. And he basically backhands a senator or congressman or whatever, and the guy says something to the effect of, "Son, I don't think you know what you're messing with. We use the dollar as a weapon to force other people to do what we want them to do." And he said, and Zuckerberg said something back like, 
I, I respect that and maybe I don't know what I'm doing, but I do understand that if you don't do what the world needs, you'll be forced to do what you don't want to do or something like that, right? And the guy had no idea what he's talking about. But to your point, that's what the dollar is now. It's just a weapon. And we saw it with Russia. We saw it with China. And so that's what money in a political system always is, is just a weapon for control. And so to tie that together with China, right? So And, and to tie that together with the image that I sent you about the steps that the U.S. took to take that power, right? So we do all these things between 1900 and 1940s, and then in 1944, we have Bretton Woods. Once that dollar network is established, and raise your hands and say, hey guys, I know we've been the sweatshop of the world, but uh, let's just have peace, and we got this thing called the dollar, it'd be great, because then we could all just easily, more easily transact. China's doing that now with the swap line, right? And, and so somewhere we're having our Bretton Woods 2.0 conference but I, I don't know about it. we'll read about it once it's done and, and you, maybe you know about it or whatnot but i think the smart countries the global south and this was kind of the tweet that got us or dm that got us back um talking on this the global south in my opinion if they were smart and i think this is what china realized that our politicians that have been asleep at the wheel don't realize is with something like bitcoin we can live in a world where multi-currencies work look there's 180 currencies in the world right now i think that's the number they don't work because they all depend on the dollar dollar goes up those guys punish dollar goes down those guys have a heyday right and that's where triffin's dilemma comes in you either support the world or you support yourself and we're at that juncture so the global south these smaller countries can do these loans with china to get off the dollar but now have a currency that nobody controls that they could use to be more productive to be so it's like Bretton Woods 2.0 right and that's the importance of stable coins the importance of stable coins is that they effectively bring back euro dollars which are broken that's why the fed changed from from euro dollars to sofer because they no longer had control of the money uh, i wrote an article in bitcoin magazine about that right before uh, it may have been after Luna, but it was before, you know, the whole crypto ecosystem blew up because of FBF. I mean, it was SPF. LIBOR to SOFA, right? Uh, well, yeah, but LIBOR, but LIBOR, but all financial systems are based off LIBOR. So the whole Euro dollar market functioned around that LIBOR pricing and all that scandal was, I think, 2010 or 12 when they had all the, you know, congressional hearings about desk propping up and pumping up LIBOR to mess around with the rates market. So what the Fed, taking a full circle, a little bit or a step back here, um, what the Fed missed is what technology did to interest rates. In the Fed's mind, interest rates control the world, but they don't because most people don't have a loan. They don't need a loan. And once technology kind of post 1990s reached a point where you could start a business in your bedroom with a credit card and have an $800 a month, uh, you know, rent. And that's all you had because somebody in the Philippines is shipping your product and you're creating it online. So you got no overhead. You don't have this inventory. There's no longer a need for, for rates for most people right now. You can buy home and all that kind of stuff, but by and large, they don't. So you can move that rate all around you want and it doesn't work. And so that's what 
Greenspan, in my opinion, kind of broke or, or misunderstood. So you get into 2008 and you're like, well, this stuff doesn't work anymore. What do we do? And so they're massaging it with these desks and it all comes to light. And then Department of Justice puts some of J.P. Morgan's traders in jail for manipulating gold markets, right? And But people don't care. So meanwhile, China is in the background just kind of like, okay, well, we're still going to be the sweatshop and we're going to open some agreements so that they can come in and sort of, you know, fox in the hen house and be like, look, they, do you really trust these guys? They clearly don't know what's going on. Like, I'll give you a swap line if you want to use some money. Now, China's, you know, back and forth, bans Bitcoin and then unbans it and then bans it again. And so you don't really know. That's the chess match. But, you know, there's just a lot of things that point to um, it's a new environment, right? 40 years of rates down. What if we went 40 years of rates up? Most of the stuff in the U.S. doesn't work anymore. Now it's becoming abundantly clear, <laughs> which is. And so with all of this in mind, we've been focusing heavily on China and the power moves they're making as an American citizen. Somebody cares about this country. What do you think America should do as all this is going on and Bitcoin exists? You know, I think... Um, Again, like you said, care about America. You grow up in America. We love America. Everybody loves them. It's still, of all the places, like just look at the COVID lockdowns. Where would you have rather been? As bad as it was, right? You'd probably, I would guess, rather be in America. And we don't get to pick where we're born. We're all born. Into, and so we all have different ideologies that we believe in because of where we were born. Um, but once you're born, you have the opportunity to move around and people move to America. So I think the way, how do we fix that is one, we get rid of 90 year old politicians. Um, I love, I love old people. Um, but after the age of 60 to 65, most of the decisions that you would make on a forward basis don't match what the generations behind you will need. You're a great mentor. You can say, hey, I've already beat my head up on that wall. Here's the shortcut. Let me help you get there. You go, you know, to me, that was what 2008 was about. It wasn't about global financial crisis. It was about half the workforce wanted to do everything on a yellow notepad. And the only way you did anything was write on a yellow notepad and drop it in the UPS and ship it to somebody. And somebody physically picked it up and put it on somebody else's desk. The other half of the workforce was like, you spend three hours doing that. I'll do it 10 minutes with an Excel spreadsheet. And then I'll take the day off, right? No, you've got to have people work. So that's how, to me, the U.S. fixes. It. Like, stop putting all of these bureaucratic red tape so, you know, Pelosi can have an internal trading desk. Like, let people be productive. So make money and systems and business work where people can produce. Remember, get back to the fundamentals and values and and the reason why we're here on earth. And, and I think when you have sound money, uh, that happens because people aren't so focused on income. They're focused on production. So when I talked about The Last Samurai, a uh, great movie, right? Remember, did you watch that? I, I'm ashamed to admit I've not watched The Last Samurai yet. This weekend, homework. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It, it, it's great. So Tom Cruise, he's an American warrior, and they go in and, and um, I think it was Japan. Uh, they were trying to get rid of the um, the ninjas. That was their army ninjas, right? 
uh, is like trying to get rid of cowboys. Would you rather have a cowboy or just like an, you know? So they U.S. takes um, takes guns in and like, hey, why aren't you guys fighting hand to hand combat? You could just shoot everybody and stand on the hill. So he gets captured. He's a fierce enemy, and the other general uh of i guess the knights or i mean not knights but the ninjas he realizes he's like i recognize that guy he has the same passion and hunger that i do so he brings him back to his camp and learns from him so like you and i we we're, we're we grew up in a democratic world we believe in democracies and people having freedoms but we can learn from you know good and bad from other societies communist societies or whatever like so that was kind of the two sides that were polar opposites started learning from each other and they became friends. And in that Tom Cruise learns basically the ways of a ninja. And it took him like a year and he would just get his butt kicked every day. And he started to notice when he went around the village, like, wait, this guy's, you know, looking at every grain of wheat. He's not just like, bundling up grain, throwing it because he can sell it real quick. Because that's what we are now doing in America. And so Bitcoin and kind of China and, and, and the value system is more of like, you know, look at the guy that made our microphones, right? He probably just painstakingly goes over every inch. Maybe he just throws it in a box and sells it. I don't, I don't really know. but uh, <laughs> So the reason why I say that movie is important because – he finally has his, they're in a, like, they do practice, like ninja practice every day or whatever, like warrior practice. And the whole entire world slows down and he sees the moves before they happen and he finally beats the guy. And so then he's like, I'm not a, you know, U.S. warrior. I'm like a true value system warrior. And so he goes on and like fights a battle and they all get killed by the u.s people sitting on the hill shooting a gun <laughs> so, or actually i think he may have lived but all of the other warriors get killed but they had like whatever a hundred guys versus two thousand and they almost won i need to go watch that movie yeah it's great nope. sorry I, ru- I ruined it for you that's okay i'll watch it anyway yeah. I mean, you said something interesting there like what really matters is production not how much money you make, especially under a sound monet, monetary system. I think that's important to really internalize is if you're able to increase production by really bringing back opportunity cost and making more efficient capital allocation, a thing that actually exists, which doesn't exist now because of the manipulation of interest rates. People are more productive. Hopefully prices go down and you don't need as much income to, to survive mm-hmm. and thrive in this world and you can lower your time preference and focus on yep. these um, things that you're passionate about and bring actual value to the world. Yeah. And I think a key question, I think everybody should ask themselves, right. If you have kids, um, do I want to teach my kids values, principles and work habits and skills that they can use at 20 and 30 and 40, or do I just want to handle money? Right. And so today, it feels like the common belief in America is like, let's just handle money. Yeah. It doesn't, that's probably the worst decision that we could do. But if I, 
teach my kids a real skill, not saying they have to go be a plumber or carpenter or whatever, but if I teach them how to do it at some point, they will use that skill to build something, to do some work that matters. And sure, they, like I'm as guilty of as anybody else, like focusing on income. Do I have enough? Like my neighbors just got a new house. I should get a new house, like all that kind of stuff. But I think to answer a little bit ago, you asked like, what could America do is like in our education system and Dalio touches on this teach skills. Now we're like reading Macbeth and all that kind of stuff three times over. And I'm sure maybe there's some stuff in there that is a skill, but like teach skills uh, because skills build wealth. Money doesn't money most often destroys it. I mean, like that's part of, my career is being involved in wealth management and seeing how money impacts people emotionally. Yeah. That's one thing I'm very happy. My father did in early age. It wasn't necessarily teaching me skills. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Maybe you don't have any skills to like, I'm not going to be able to teach my kid how to do woodworking or anything like that, or change a motor. Uh, I don't have those skills, but maybe I could learn with him. And like below that, just instilling work ethic. I started yeah. a paper out at 12 years old. So, work. so you have a skill and you do it right. Is yeah. it's building businesses or help people build businesses or finding investment opportunities, right? There's money and income that's involved with that and it's lucrative, but it takes real skill to be that kind of leader that can go help people figure it out. And so if you're dragging your kid along or your kid's seeing you do those things and make those sacrifices, I mean, all I can say is one, uh, my business partner kind of introduced me to the phrase more is caught than is taught. So more is caught than is taught. You may not be verbally teaching your kid anything, but every action he or she sees you do is teaching them everything. Yeah. And, and that's, the thing that they're not going to remember what you said or how you said it, they might, but they're going, and I see as my kids get older, I see them do stuff and I'm like, I know where they got that. (laughs) Sometimes good, sometimes bad. Right. Um, No, it's it's something I'm hyper aware of now is my oldest son. He's almost four and he's becoming hyper aware of everything around him. Yeah. That's about when it is going on. Uh, And it's, uh, it's scary. It's not scary. It was like, it really makes you contemplate like, all right, what example am I setting? So let's put it that if, if parents and I go to a men's group and there's a whole, I can send it to you offline, a whole, this guy's phenomenal, but we spent 52 weeks on money. We talked about money starting in like week 48, right? Because money is a set of principles. That's why Bitcoin's awesome. Uh, it's not a number. It's not a digit. Um, there's now we're on wisdom again it's a biblical thing and like we go through proverbs and if you read the first seven proverbs just seven and apply those every day there will be no issues so if and a large part of it is if parents took so today parents how we fix america parents have to take back control the school is not there to teach my kid the school is not there to get my kid a job the school is not there to make sure my kid learns to make an income i am right so if we teach them more is called than is taught right if we teach them those actions that lead to it then everybody will be successful value they'll be productive 
work will happen because that's like the core thing we're supposed to do is work put here to work do good be good and you know we can't all be bazillionaires we can't all be millionaires and um when it comes to money like there's going to be poor people and there's going to be rich people and those people that figure out how to be rich they should and this is what corporate america is missing they should do the hard lifting of creating the business starting the business to hire people right because that enriches those people to do work and they should send down appropriately fair amount of money so those people can have great things in their life and improve their life and in the last 20 years you're seeing ceos hold all that money at the top and then creating and, and intensifying that hamster wheel and that's what like it happened post 1971 with dollars right is the exponential rate with which the hamster wheel sped up yeah and now yeah. now we're at that point where it's just completely broken again people will pay attention when the money is broken yeah and that's the thing like it's a bit messed up because everybody does want to be rich now because they think that's the only way to live comfortably. And it's like you could solve the problem of living comfortably on a more modest income then yeah. you wouldn't have everybody trying to be rich. Like, and going back to like, do you want to more is caught than is taught? Um, and like, just don't give your kids money, give them skills. Like thinking of the TikTok generation. Values, principles. So TikTok is very important. I am extremely anti-TikTok. Yeah. Because I've done my homework, and it is a Chinese backdoor. And there was, I forgot, the government or somebody looked into it, and, you know, who's partnering with it. It's okay if Microsoft owns it, but not okay if, uh, I forgot the parent company. Tencent. Yeah, Tencent. Um, but in America, TikTok flips videos that waste your time and don't teach you a skill. So what are you catching? Junk. The Kardashians the housewives of whatever, like just pure junk in China, supposedly they're 14 to 16 year old. They don't, they have like a limited time they can use it, but what is it teaching them? Like engineering, math skills. And so there was this poll and I, I, I didn't do deep research. So I just assume it's true. Um, where they polled like the average 14, 16 year old in the U S what do they want to be an influencer? They polled the average 14, 16 year old in China. The TikTok users, uh, what do they want to be? An astronaut. Like, which one of those two civilizations <laughs> is going to be better in the next 40 years? We're, and, and that kind of fits into our empty cities and all that kind of stuff. It's like, if the cities are empty, those kids will figure out how to build it. Do you think a, a influencer other than Mr. Beast or whatever is running around in Africa doing the oil or water wells? Uh, <laughs> but who's going to win there? Yeah. If you're going like to Vegas, be us. yeah. If you're going to Vegas and those are your two options, which one are you putting? Put money on the engineers. Yeah, every time. Yeah, it is. It is scary too, especially consider the social climate here in the United States, and mm -hmm. you could see things devolving rather quickly. Though I'd like to stay white pilled and optimistic. I do believe that things can change rather quickly if people do wake up. And I do think inflation pressures are forcing people to ask hard questions that will lead them to wake up to right. all this is broken. We need to fix it. Um, 
I agree just, with you. Staying positive, right? No, I I tend to like come across as negative, and I just kind of like dive deep into the foundations, and it becomes very clear like what the problem is. But most people, you know, like the steroid thing. Well, there's steroids in the PGA. You can go look at people's driving distance, and it's not all because technology got better, right? A, 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 an athlete is not better at 33 than they were at 25. It's not possible. Your uh, one out of 50 will be, right? Your genetic makeup declines starting at age 27 for the male. And actually, I think it's before that, but whatever. Um, so you, um, I just drew a blank where I went with that. I guess I got off tangent. What was it you said? We were uh, optimistic, staying optimistic. Oh, yeah. So staying optimistic is, is you know, building those habits back into everything that we do. And, and that's how we get out of the mess. And, and if we can get leaders in society to kind of push back a little bit and, and people will start to wake up and be like, oh, well, maybe, you know, I don't need to just go on vacations and sit on social media all day. Like I'd rather take some time off and live a life. Yeah. We need something like JFK's uh, school gym curriculum. Mm-hmm. Get healthy people. And yeah, no, we need better leaders too. When you look at all the politicians, the 90 year old politicians giving speeches, they're so obviously vapid and their speak is just pure politics speak. It's nothing inspiring. It's nothing worthwhile. It's all projection and propaganda. Mm-hmm. That's one thing the world is really lacking and people are finding it in independent media. That's why they're going to places like Joe Rogan and Jocko Willick and Jordan Peterson, Huberman, whoever it may be. It's because the people at the helm of the political apparatus just aren't providing that. There's no. So that's inspiration there. Propaganda is an interesting word, right? Um, it's very interesting because now if you believe anything that wasn't put out by the FDA or the Fed or anything, like you're just a propagandist, right? You, you know, tinfoil hat guy. But if you go read the House of Morgan, okay, and it goes back to the 1800s and it walks through how J.P. Morgan was built and blah, 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 and, and all the funding of Mussolini and Hitler and all those things, right? In the 20s, guess what that was? Propaganda. They actually use the terms conspiracy. Um, one of the guys, I, I totally drawn a blank here, that um, set up the Federal Reserve. There were two competing Federal Reserve plans. The one that won was from a German guy that came out here to bring banking to the United States, whose brother was uh, head of the like German CIA. Well, okay. That does not sound like somebody we should put in control of things. But point being is now like you're a conspiracy theorist in 2020. You and me were conspiracy theorists, right? And this is where it sounds negative, but it's really positive. So 100 years after all those things happened in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, there are documents, government documents, information that say, hey, this was going on. These things that in that day people said – that's not right. You shouldn't be doing it. And they were like, oh, you're just conspiracy theorists. Let's shut you down. It is now known to be true fact. So in 2020 and in, in post-2020, 
most of the things that we're finding out, even look at the COVID, the way the narrative around that has shifted. Um, there was a Wuhan lab deal. There were scientists that leaked stuff, all that kind of jazz, right? And most of what Fauci talked about was not true, but it's still conspiracy and we're conspiracy theorists for talking about it. So when enough time passes that people forget, and this is what the fourth turning talks about, then we start to say, oh, wow, that was bad. You know, the, the, what was conspiracy is the truth more often than not. And what is claimed to be the truth in the moment tends to be what is really the conspiracy when you go back and look at history. And so I think that ties into this whole conversation about dollars in China because China realizes that. And that's sort of where I think TikTok is kind of that avenue to create that division and how you, you know, how do you win in a sport? You know, you understand the rules, you understand the other team, a little Sun Tzu, um, and then you devise a strategy that either confuses or creates division. And then you go do your thing and you win. I uh, was pulling up a tweet that I want Logan to, to pull up because I think Dave Collum um, defines conspiracy theory the best. I am a conspiracy theorist. I believe men, men and women of wealth and power conspire if you don't think so, you're what is called an idiot. If you believe stuff but fear the label, you are what is called a coward. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, that's perfect. <laughs> that's like when you break down the actual definition of a conspiracy theorist, it is somebody who's making theories that men and women of power are conspiring to do things, which if you don't believe that they are, you are an idiot. <laughs> it, well, yeah, and, and you're not willing. So this is where proof of work comes in, right? You're not willing to go back and do some study, do some work to understand that things that happened and transpired, how they happened, how they transpired, and then what the real truth was. So like we should all be conspiracy theorists. You know, the yeah. whole idea that science follows the scientific method is just rendered completely false by 2020. Yeah. We didn't like create a hypothesis, test it. We just jumped straight to the test. And this whole trust the science thing is just completely anathema to the whole idea of science in the first place. You have a hypothesis, you test it, and science is an ongoing intellectual exploration. It's not set in stone. And I think it's always sunny in Philadelphia clips been popping up recently or Mac. Yeah. Uh, just goes through history of like Galileo, Aristotle, Isaac Newton. It was like they were the best scientists of the day. Everybody thought they were and, the smartest and, people and they turned out to be a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of those guys, right, they were right on a lot of things. And a lot of those guys, they ended up in jail for a period or, or just completely ostracized and black. Was it Aristotle's or Socrates? Um, I, I think all. Yeah. All starved to death. Yeah, yeah. Tesla too, I think. Um Anyway, so that's just sort of, I think the big, uh, where we get back to the positivity, like the big opportunity, and hopefully people in our power and our leadership will realize this and they'll stop like putting the brakes on Bitcoin and just the general crypto ecosystem. So not to say a dirty word, but like financial services is huge. You could be a hedge fund, you could be wealth management, you could be a derivatives trader, you could be a rates guy. So like crypto ecosystem is like saying financial services, right? 
within financial services, there are base layer assets, there are risk assets, and there are toxic assets, right? And we're just kind of like at the base layer asset. Now, there's some risk assets and some toxic assets in there, but you know we're there. So to get back to being positive, like how do we look through that? We say, well, how can this benefit the people, and how can it generate work and jobs and and things that we can focus on? Rat and and for smaller countries, global south, second and third world countries, that's what U.S. was. But we were smart enough at that point and had real leaders who realized we can create a dollar network and become, get our seat at the table and become a leader throughout the globe and help set standards and policies. And so that's the opportunity with Bitcoin is for those smaller countries. It's a way to opt out. It's a parallel network, so they can stay in if they want. Maybe one day it becomes its own network, but I think, I mean, own like single financial system, but there's no industry that has one winner. There's always multiple players. And having a parallel network gives people options. So you participate or you don't, or you cross, you know, in from one market to another. And that's kind of what China's doing with these, you know, dollar loans that, that return in renminbi and yuan. Yeah. And that's something I become more passionate about too, is particularly for Americans listening to the show, which is the majority of our audience base or international. We have a global audience, but the uh, overwhelming portion of it is here in the United States. And it's, I don't know the exact answer to it, but I think history has proven that it's possible. It's like, don't wait on the government to do this. Bitcoin's open Mm -hmm. source rights are taken and, defended they're not going to be given to you so the government's not going to give us these rights at the end of the day yes they could create a somewhat lax regulatory environment to make it as easy as possible to go do what we want to do but at the end of the day it comes down to the individuals actually yeah building on this thing and then more importantly speaking up and fighting on behalf of it uh in the battlefield of intellectual debate and yeah like i i, I really think that is the most disheartening part of the United States of America in 2023 is everybody's so dependent on the government and the central banks to fix the problems that are inherent in our system. And it's just completely insane to me because it is very clear that they created the problems in the first place. And to think that the arsonist is going to put out the fire is nonsensical. It's literally insane to keep doing the same thing, going to the government, fix this, fix that, and expecting them to do it when they've broken everything. Um, and that's where um, there's one thing that backs money, nothing else. Right? It is two, but the same thing, faith and belief. When you have faith and belief in something, you get it done. When you have faith and belief that somebody else will accept this unit, whatever it is, you pick acorns. If I believe that Marty will accept acorns, for the book on your shelf and you believe that that acorn is worth more than that book, you'll accept it, but you will only accept it if you believe and have conviction that whomever else in your circle will turn around and accept it when you need a candy bar or whatever. Right. And so faith and belief is all that, in my opinion, all that black backs money. But what's important about that is faith and belief is all that backs anything. So if you have faith, a strong faith, strong belief, strong conviction that you have the skills, more is called than is taught, 
to do good work that will generate income, you'll go do it. But if you're filled with fear, which unfortunately is what governments know, because in the 20s, they started doing psychological studies on people. And they carried that through to the 60s, where they did the really big ones at Stanford. And they created this thing called the internet, where they know exactly what we're searching, what we're looking at. So they have a very deep picture into our psychology. And now the way the information and money travels around, they know what we're buying too. So they have like this intense, you know, stranglehold on fear. And the average person, as you look at, you know, again, take it spiritual, we don't have to get that way. But if you look at the decline in spirituality, it follows the dollar. It looks exactly, the two charts look almost identical. So if you got a population, a group of people globally that have less conviction, faith, and belief, and more fear, who wins? doesn't matter what money you use. No. And I have belief in faith in Bitcoin because right. the underlying principles of that, scarce, it's digital, yep. easy to verify, easy to secure. And that gives me faith to accept it. And then, yeah. And, and it was working because that's, to me, that's like the whole, you know, scientific method. Well, it's not really going to work in the West because it's harder than a credit card to just walk to the store and go. But if you go to Africa where a dude doesn't have access to a bank for a hundred miles and he's got to cross an anaconda and two tigers or a lion, what's he going to use? A Nokia foot phone with some Bitcoin on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so test, do you, you know, do your seven steps scientific method in those regions of the world that truly need, you know, banking access. Cause it's not a problem in America like in, in Europe and there are parts of banking that are broken, but bankers are always going to be around and they're always going to do what bankers do. And, you know, financial systems have been involved since whatever the 12, 1300s. So that's kind of it. Yeah. It's been great. I did too. Yeah. Hope, hope you enjoyed it. Is there any uh, parting notes we should leave the freaks with? Uh, you know, go find faith and belief and conviction in something, right? Uh, more is caught than is taught. If you have kids, teach them. If you have friends, teach them, uh, you, you know, teach them through your work and, and, you know, hopefully that catches on and people are more productive. Um, I do a podcast, navigating Bitcoin's noise, a little sh- shameless plug, nothing, nothing great. Just a way to have general hey, conversations. Don't, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> and, uh, Right on Substack, just came at gookin.substack.com. And just primarily when things hit me, like your email, uh, where, where some important points. And um, don't get too caught up in the noise and the fear and, you know, just kind of be who you are. Be who you are. Comes to the noise and the fear around Bitcoin. Just always remember there's only 21 million governments and central banks can't stop printing money and people need a solution. It's very simple. That's great advice. Yeah. All right. That's all we got today, right. freaks. Kane, yeah. thank you. Long time coming. Glad we yeah, got man. it. Glad we got it in the books. We'll do it again some point in the future. Let's do it. All right. Peace and love, freaks. <laughs>